Forge of Foes is in week three of our Kickstarter for this new book of monsters. We're going to talk about that. And I have a surprise. I have a couple things to share about Forge of Foes that we have not yet talked about, which are going to be pretty exciting. One of those things are the general use stat blocks. These are stat blocks I've added to Forge of Foes. We're going to look at them today. Robert Schwab, creator of Shadow of the Demon Lord, has reintroduced Shadow of the Weird Wizard and has a Kickstarter campaign coming out in June. So we're going to take a quick look at that. I want to do a product spotlight for adventures from the Arcane Line library. This is, this is the same creator who put out the Shadow Dark RPG Kickstarter, which is hitting close to a, a million dollars. So we're going to take a look at those adventures. Cobalt Press also released Playtest 2 of Black Flag. And we're going to continue to look at Patreon questions for March 2023, all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in RPGs. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help me put on shows like this, you can become either a veteran or a hero tier subscriber of the Sly Flourish Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material like the City of Arches Sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, a bunch of exclusive adventures, a dedicated Discord channel, and the monthly Q&A, and a lot more. A lot of material to, that you can get for becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. If you're interested in becoming a patron of Sly Flourish, please check it out in the show notes below. We are doing very well. The Forge of Foes Kickstarter is continuing and is going very well. We're closing in on $200,000 and 5,000 backers, which is awesome. We're so excited to bring this book out. Scott and Teos and I are getting together every week talking about what we're doing we're reviewing the chapters now we're revising a lot of the stuff the book is written right the whole first draft is written and now we're going back and tweaking things and figuring things out and figuring out what art orders we want to send out now that we know it's clearly going to fund now is the time to start working on our art orders to start filling that out so we are hard at work because we are very interested in making this book awesome and getting it in your hands I'm going to put out a update next week, and this is an update that we've had a few people that have asked about this, and I am very excited to share that, in fact, portions of Forge of Foes are going to be released under a Creative Commons attribution license, which means anybody, including other publishers, can use material that we are going to release under this Creative Commons license in their own products. It also means they can be available in digital tools. They could be filling out interpretive dances, whatever you want to do with them. Some of the kinds of material we're going to release include the chart that lets you build a quick monster, the templates that you can apply to create monsters of different types, and those the, the add-on monster powers that are available under the quick monster builder chapter those are going to be in there the general use stat blocks that i'm about to show those are going to be in there and a whole bunch of other material there's going to be a big list there's going to be update we're going to put on kickstarter to talk about which parts of it we're going to release under creative commons license that's going to be a whole separate so we're going to have our own separate forge of foes system re system reference document that's going to have the stuff in it that people can use with the license on how to do that. So that's all going to be under the Creative Commons attribution license. So I'm very excited to do that. And it's something we're very eager to do because we know that this material is not just material we would like you to use in your game. We hope it is the kind of material that other creators can take and build off of to make these awesome games that we're doing. So I'm very excited to announce that. This is the first time I've ever announced it is right now. And we are going to have a, an update posted to the Kickstarter early next week that's going to dive into more details about what we're going to release under the Creative Commons license. So very excited for that. One of our philosophies behind designing Forge of Foes, which is available on Kickstarter now, you can find a link down into the show notes to back the Forge of Foes Kickstarter today. And one of the things that's really interesting about the design approach we took with this is we look at big problems from different angles, which means sometimes we offer different solutions to a particular issue. And an example would be quick monster building guidelines that we have in the sample
example chapter, you can see our table for building a quick monster, building the statistics, adding on creature templates, and adding on other powers that you can use to kind of build up your monsters. But one of the other ways that we're taking a look at this is with an idea called general use combat stat blocks. And the idea behind this is instead of having a table of every single challenge rating from CR 1 8th all the way to CR 30, instead of needing to use a table like that to build a monster, what if we tried to find like seven monster stat blocks that cover the widest range of potential scenarios across the entire spectrum of the game. So it's not always intended that these act as like a boss monster, but it does mean we want a stat block that at different levels can support different purposes. And this, so I'm going to show off this chapter right now. It's, a, it's only a quick two page chapter, but it has what I think are something that could be really, really exciting for, for running games. So instead of looking up things in that table, or in addition to looking up things in that table, because we're offering both the table and this, you can use one of these stat blocks and reskin it. These are designed to be reskinned very easily based on its challenge rating. And we selected and played around with in the last couple of weeks I've been playing around with exactly what challenge ratings are most useful across the widest range of games from level one to 20. And these are the ones that we sort of picked. You'll notice that they lean a little bit more towards the low end because that's where the differences in levels have the biggest difference. And in the higher end, you can have bigger stat blocks with a bigger gap between them because they, they, they support a wider range of activities in higher levels. So an example is the, the CR 1 8th minion. And the idea here, each, each time we talk about like what kind of monster makes sense for this stat block. And ravenous rats, weak skeletons, shifty bandits, or low-ranking cultists. Like this CR 1 8th are, are your you know, lowest form of combatant that you're likely to see. And they serve well as either like one-on-one -on -one against a group of first level characters, or you can use them in larger groups at higher levels, like fourth level and above. Very simple stat block. Our armor class of 11, nine hit points, a base set of stats, and a single attack. Plus three to hit, does four damage. Really straightforward stuff. This is a good minion to throw against first level characters. They're not gonna kill first level characters outright. They have low enough hit points that usually one or two hits are gonna take them out. And in large groups later on, when you can cast like Burning Hands, you're likely to take out a bunch of them at once. So they're really designed to be kind of a minion style stat block. Now, one of the things you'll notice with these stat blocks, not so much with this one, where it has like a plus one to dexterity, is that the attributes that we select here, we picked one particular attribute to make the main attribute. All you have to do is shift that over to one of the other attributes if you want to change the style of monster. We'll get into that when we look into some of this a little bit more. So then we have a one half CR monster. Now the CR one half monster, this is like a seasoned or trained guard, trained soldiers, a more powerful bandit, a murderous humanoid, or another kind of armed undead. Stronger than like your typical skeleton and certainly stronger than your typical minion. So a little bit beefier, right? This is a little bit of a beefier stat block. It works well against as like a boss for a first level group, or it could be like an elite monster when you have like one of these for every two characters about level two. For fourth level, they work well as a one-on-one -on -one combatant. And at six, at level six and or above, you could drop a, a few of these. And the design is such that like the hit points of the soldier is low enough that a fireball will take them out. That's one of the thoughts is like, if you're going to have a bunch of minions at higher levels where you can kill a whole bunch of them, the soldier is still works as a minion enough that it can be killed with most of the big blast spells that you're going to cast later. 
And this is one you see, like this one is really built on strength, right? We gave it a high strength of 14 and that's where its attack is coming from. Dexterity is plus one, so it's a little bit more of its armor class and stuff like that. But the AC is relatively low with an AC of 12. Constitution is a little higher, which is why it has 22 hit points. And the soldier can make two attacks, right? This is a, a two attack creature, plus four to hit, five damage each. If you think about your thug, if you think about other sort of CR one half monsters, CR one half monsters are actually pretty beefy and can do a fair bit of damage on their attacks. And that's sort of the soldier one. So you can see where like you could grab that soldier, you can throw some other abilities onto it. You can make it a different kind of creature, change things a little bit, and you still have a monster you can drop right on your table and, and they're ready to use. Next one is the Brute at CR two. This is like a heavy hitting veteran, a, a, a powerful bodyguard, Low-ranking demons or devils might fall into this. Dangerous monsters in the wild. You could have like a more powerful undead. Like if you want to have a, a white is a little stronger than this. But you know, it could probably serve, especially if you're going to have a few whites. 13 AC. The armor class on these guys is always a little bit lower. And hit points are a little bit higher because we think it's more fun to hit monsters. And the monsters survive more from hit points than from a high armor class. But you can always change the armor class to support the story of the monster that you want. That's something that we promote. You'll see that this one is focused on strength as well. CR2 makes two attacks, plus five to hit, 10 damage on each attack. All these guys hit a little bit hard. They're, they're, all, they're all a touch hard. Their intention is that you can add on these other abilities and you have a really powerful, powerful creature. So that's a CR2. Then we jump to CR4 with a template we call the Specialist. The Specialist is like a spy, an assassin, a hunter, or a trained elite force. They're, they're, in the, this stat block is designed to be kind of a stealthier, a more stealthy sort of stat block. But again, the intention is that all you have to do is move the attribute around. And by moving the, the primary attribute, you could still make it a heavy hitting brute if you wanted. The hit points aren't going to change. The armor class doesn't have to change. All you have to do is move which ability is higher. And it doesn't change any of the other specs on the creature. The attack bonus, the amount of damage they do, that all stays the same. You just say it's strength instead of, instead of dexterity. And really, you can just do that in your head. You don't even have to write anything down. You can just use the exact same stat block the way it is, only say, oh, it's strength instead of dexterity, and you're good to go. Same thing with making like a spellcaster. If you decided that your specialist wanted to be like a low-level wizard, you can just simply say, okay, instead of dexterity, now it's intelligence. But it still does it. And instead of the, the multi-attack, could still be it does two arcane blasts. And the arcane blasts are plus six to hit and do 15 damage each of arc, of arcane damage or force damage, right? And you're and you're done. So you can do you can use these stat blocks and reskin them in there in your head and make them really strong. So it's it's definitely designed to be usable right out right off of the page with just modifications you make in your head. The Myrmidon is a CR7. Now we're getting into these higher level, higher CR monsters. Powerful elite bodyguards, high priests, wizards, warlocks, sorcerers, demons, and devils. It serves as a boss monster for fifth level characters, an elite combatant, i.e. one creature for two characters at seventh level, a one-on-one -on -one combatant at 10th level, or in large groups at 20th level. If you're going to have a large group of creatures attack the characters, the Myrmidon would probably be about as high as you want to go, and even against 20th level characters. We focus this one on intelligence. So this one is kind of designed to be like, you know, a wizard out front, but you can move that intelligence over to strength. Works just fine. Works exactly. You really only have to do it for things like saving throws, right? If you decide, okay, well, actually, he's trained in intelligence for a saving throw instead of wisdom for a saving throw, then you can, you can move it around for saving throws. But generally, you don't even have to worry about which ability ability score is the highlighted ability score for a monster unless you want to do it in your head because the rest of the stat block still works 15 armor class 123 hit points three attacks plus seven to hit 16 damage per attack straight straight up straightforward again 
you're making like a wizard kind of character, your wizard character can kind of, can do three different fiery blasts, plus seven to hit on each fiery blast, and each blast does 16 damage. Again, you can also sort of reskin these abilities. You can add on the other monster powers that we have in Forge of Foes to spice these things up, to give them abilities that they might not, they might not have otherwise. So you can use them either directly as is, or you can wrap on a monster template, or you can add on monster powers and really spice these things up to be exactly what you want. So they're really designed to be as modular as you want them to be and easily usable right off the page. The Sentinel, CR-11. Now we're getting into the real big ones. Often there are otherworldly beings such as demons, devils, other powerful Palanir beatings, powerful guardian constructs, powerful undead servants. These are these are your big, your big blasters. The stat block can serve as a boss for seventh level characters, an elite monster, two to one, for 12th level characters or standalone one-on-one against 16th level characters. This one focuses on strength as its main as its main ability score. But again, you can shift them and move them wherever you want. AC 17, definitely a higher armor class, 165 hit points, makes four attacks, plus nine to hit, 18 damage per hit. So lots of lots of damage, lots of attacks. It's gonna it's gonna put out a bunch of damage. And then finally we have our champion. The champion is the highest level version. Now, why don't we have like a CR 20 for like big boss monsters? And the idea behind that is if you're really gonna have a big boss monster at high challenge ratings, you're gonna wanna use something more than just a quick template for this. The ideas behind these is that these are the ones that you have on hand to improvise a game and you really don't want to be improvising a high challenge rating boss monster so we're not offering a high challenge you know really high like a cr20 or 25 or anything like that you can make one if you want using our quick monster guidelines but we're not offering a stat block for that because we don't think that that's going to work particularly well even if we offered one the champion, however, can work well as a powerful boss for like 11th level characters. It can act as an elite, i.e. two characters, you know, stand up to about two characters at 15th level or one-on-one against 17th level characters. Has an armor class of 19, 212 hit points. This one focuses on charisma as its ability. We kind of wanted to mix the attributes around a little bit. It makes four attacks plus 11 to hit with each attack and does 24 points of damage per hit. So it hits pretty hard. So you can see that the complexity of these stat blocks doesn't really really get much higher, even at higher challenge ratings. They are all about their armor class, their hit points, the number of attacks they have, and the amount of damage that they do. That's the stuff that really shifts shifts up and down. The intention is that you would want to customize these around the kind of monsters you're actually going to have in your game with both flavor and story. And if you want to tie some mechanics to the flavor and story of the monster, you can use our creature te- templates and put that right on top. And you can use some of the monster powers that we have elsewhere in the book to really spice these things up. The design intent for this is you could print this out one on one sheet of paper both sides and you probably have the stat blocks you need to pretty much run a game at any level that you're going to play other than maybe high level boss monsters i've used this at my table and i find it really easy to use i had a monster i wanted to run in my game on wednesday and i looked at the stat block in the book and i was like yeah it's kind of complicated and I don't know how balanced this is. I'm just going to use my Myrmidon instead. And I used the Myrmidon stat block and the feedback I got from the players was like, wow, that was really fun. It was hard and it was interesting and I really liked it. And it was like, I changed, I, I swapped them things out. I gave it a breath weapon. I took the breath weapon power and I did it in my head. I didn't even write anything down. But just having this one sheet in front of me was all I needed to run a good fun battle for four seventh level characters. 
And that was just using the Myrmidon stat block. It worked really, really well. So this is just one of the things that we have in Forge of Foes. Just one, this is just two pages out of the 128 pages of monster stuff that we have in for Forge of Foes. If you think this is cool, if you want to see more stuff like this, if you want to see all the monster powers that we have, if you want to see all the guidance, all everything else, then please check out the Kickstarter. Now is the best time to get involved. You can find a link down to the Kickstarter in the show notes below. So very exciting stuff. I hope you'll check it out. Again, please check out Forge of Foes, 30-page preview on the Kickstarter page, and I hope you dig it. One of the things I want to mention is this: these stat blocks will be released under the Creative Commons attribution license, which means if, you're a, if you want to put these into whatever tool you want to put them into, you can do so. If you want to add them into a product, you can do so. If you want to make new ones, you can do so. So this is, these are designed for that purpose. And they will be included in, in the monster database once they are fully published. I'm putting them in mine right now, but you guys can do it too. So I think, I think they're really neat. And it's just, it's a fast way to do it. One of the Patreon questions today talks a little bit about stuff like this. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to talk about that. Robert Schwab, creator of Shadow of the Demon Lord, has a new Kickstarter coming out in June for Shadow of the Weird Wizard. He's been working on this now for three years. He said he had 50 drafts that he's been working on for it. I am a huge fan of Shadow of the Demon Lord. I cannot wait for Shadow of the Weird Wizard to come out. He has an article I will link to in the show notes below where you can read about what his process has been building Shadow of the Weird Wizard. It's the kind of thing we thought, like, I'm pretty sure he could have done this like one year afterwards, but he's really working on it heavily, really making interesting stuff. I'm very excited to see it, see it play out. And I, I'm, I'm very eager for a more general high fantasy version of Shadow of the Demon Lord. Shadow of the Demon Lord is a fantastic system and a really, really fun role-playing game. But it is very focused on sort of apocalyptic fantasy RPGs. And it will be nice to see a more universal fantasy RPG that's built on the same system. So I'm very excited for that. I wanted to mention the note, and I'm going to be looking forward to it in June. We'll almost certainly be doing a preview of the Kickstarter when it's coming out. So check that out. You can read more about it in the show notes below. I became more aware of the material from the Arcane Library during the OGL fiasco, and Kelsey Dion, the creator of the Arcane Library and the creator of the work that you're going to see today, did a really, really kind of heartwarming video about how she was moving forward with her own creative projects, even when we had no idea exactly what was going to be going on with the OGL. And for somebody who was full of like a lot of dismay about what was going on, it was very exciting to see somebody, a creator in this industry who was really just driving forward and say, F it, I'm going forward anyway. And she did. And her, I'm really excited that her Kickstarter is doing as well as it's doing. That's the Shadow Dark RPG Kickstarter. It has 10 days left and it's closing in on a million dollars, almost 9,000 backers for this. It's an amazing, amazing response for a Kickstarter. And I, I already did a preview about the Kickstarter a couple weeks ago. I backed it. I'm very excited to see this. But I'm also equally as interested in her 5e adventures that she's been doing. So when I first heard about her, when I first saw the material she was producing, when I saw that video, I went to her store and I picked up some of the bundles that she has available for her 5th edition adventures and took a look at them. And I was really excited about them. So I wanted to do a preview, not so much about Shadow Dark RPG and what's going on there, but also some of the other material that the Arcane Life library is publishing for 5e. So I reached out to Kelsey and said, hey, I've picked up your old adventures because there's some bundles here for things like the complete collection from 2017 to 2020. I picked that up. But I want to know if she had newer adventures that she's published that she was particularly excited to kind of show off. She did send me three review copies of three newer adventures that she has. So the adventures that you're going to see now, she did give to me as a review copy, but I have put my own money where my mouth is and bought the complete collection even before she and I started, started talking. 
So I wanted to show some of the style because I'd heard about this and I heard people say like, oh yeah, her style to adventure writing is really, really kind of unique and interesting and picking them up and looking at them myself. I saw that that is very much the case. So here's an example of the adventure Ghostlight. I'm picking Ghostlight to look at specifically because it's a first level adventure, which means it's very easy to kind of pick up and use as a one-shot adventure. It's probably one, if, if I was going to recommend one adventure to try out and look at, this is probably the one that I would try. But I would say that you can, her adventures span a wide range of different different genres and different level ranges. So I think I'm including some really high tier stuff. I haven't looked deep into the high tier. It's really hard to write high tier anything. And so I haven't looked at the high tier stuff so much, but I did look at some of the lower tier stuff and it all sort of fits this style. The immediate thing you'll get from looking at these adventures is, and that this is you know by design and by the description of the design, they are very, very brief in the descriptions of things. Every word is there to give information to the GM to help them run this game. So they are not long. You can see that the adventure itself is only 13 pages. It's really only about 10 pages from the synopsis and background down to the aftermath of this is about a 10 page adventure. That's pretty, that's, that's certainly shorter. And you'll see that the word count on this significantly reduced. And in comparing it to like big published adventures, like I've been, I've been bagging on Scarlet Citadel, right? I'm running Scarlet Citadel. And one of the things that I knock it for is there isn't a word that they ha couldn't find to stick into that adventure. It is really, really, really word heavy. And this is a, the polar, the complete opposite of that. This is how can you really focus down on just the material that you need? So you'll see like, a, a huge amount of the adventure is written in short one sentence bullet points. What's the synopsis to the adventure? It's so short. I can read it to you on a starless night at sea. A black masted galleon lunges out of the swirling ocean mist. It sails on a close parallel course to the character ship. Bang, right off the bat. The ship is the infamous Ghostlight, a legendary galleon that houses the afterlife for departed sailors. It invites the PCs aboard. If the PCs board the ship, they find a series of extra-dimensional spaces inside. They also discover one of the ship's underworld guardians has been overthrown by a malevolent spirit and his deadly minions. If the characters are able to stop the evil spirit, Ghostlight rewards them for their valor, returns them to their vessel, and drifts them back to the, into the sea. Four bullet points describe the entire adventure. It tells you what's going on, what's there, what you want to dig into. Really great. Background, same way. Again, not no huge paragraphs of text that dive into it. It's five bullet points that tell you what exactly is going on in the, in the background of this. The word to the GM is in every one of the adventures that I saw, and it's describing to you how this adventure is different and how you should prepare for it differently than you do for any other traditional adventures. What is bolded, you know, keywords, each encounter is designed to fit on a single page. One thing that's really cool, she does a video walkthrough of each of the adventures. So, you know, if you are, if you would rather talk to the creator, listen to the creator directly talking about running the adventure. I think, I don't know if every one of them has it, but certainly everyone that I've looked at so far has this link where you can click on it, go to YouTube and watch the creator talk about the adventure. Really neat idea. The adventures when you buy them actually comes with a lot of accessories. Now let's take a look at some of the accessories here. So it comes with VTT compatible maps that you can drop right into your VTT of choice. Car, combat cards. I haven't even looked at these. It has very, it has simplified combat cards for the monsters that you have in here. So you can print these out. You have your stack of cards for the monsters ready to go. PC cards. Are those pregens? You can give the same thing for characters if you want to give them a card. All this stuff is included in the adventure. Anything else? That's cool. If you want to print them out, each adventure also comes in a printer-friendly version that you can just pr right, pr send right to your printer and not burn an entire chamber of ink.
The other thing that's different about these adventures is the pacing and transitions that at the end of every scene, it talks to you about what leads into the next scene. What are the things that kind of move the adventure forward in the next scene? What's really interesting about this, and, and I don't, I'm not saying that either group took it from the other. Sometimes good ideas, you just see good ideas in different places. But I've seen these sort of transitions that are included. There's transitions at the end of, and also a description of what happened before in Light of Xeraxis, the adventure for Spelljammer, the D&D Spelljammer adventure. And one of the interesting things, like I kind of bagged on the Spelljammer box set, and I still agree with my assessment. I would rather have them have put out a book with lots of pages of setting material that I could use for a long time. I will say the Light of Xeraxis adventure is very well written, and it fits this style a lot. These, these are written together. These are The style is written together. Very brief, very few words get to the get to the point and get people playing i'll tell you as an adventure writer i can learn a lot from this right i i really feel like yeah this is a this is this really took this idea of like sure we all love our super creative stories we all want to share our creative work we're trying to help somebody and we're trying to help a gm on the other side who's very busy who has their own lives who doesn't have time to read you know a hundred thousand words of of material and they're sitting with their friends in front of them right now, and they need your help. And this kind of adventure helps them run those adventures. And I just, I, I really find it fascinating. Ship appears. Again, you know, you've got your, your hooks very clearly outlined. The transition, if the characters board the ghost, go to the abandoned deck. Tells you right where to, what, what's happening here, what's going on, where do you go? They all fit this style, right? The abandoned deck, one page encounters really handy right because you can just look at that one page you can print it out and you're ready to go really fantastic design the wailing banshee fun bit of art you know descriptions you'll notice does not have read aloud text but it does sort of have text that you could kind of read aloud right it has and i, I know james and Ercaso talked about this what could you have bullets inside of an adventure where you could read the bullet if you wanted to you can also summarize the bullet i think it's an it's a really interesting idea you know each page one encounter in this one we're seeing all the weird all the weird sort of dimensional pockets that exist on the ship and where they can go. Really neat stuff. You know, good NPC talks about the person. Again, bullet points, gets right into it. A little box for the NPC. I love this, right? I think we maybe help each other, my beauties. Listen to old Mad Tilly for a spell. One line description that kind of gets you into the head of the NPC, ready to go. You could read it aloud. It also kind of internalizes the NPC in your head. Really neat stuff. You know, battles, you know, dramatic question. Can the group get to the tunnel, right? Shows you where's the tension point? Where do things go? Really just fantastic design. The more I look at it, the more I'm like, wow, this is a really, this style is really, really cool. I really, really like it. And get right into the aftermath, right? We're right, right, we're at the end. Fantastic, you know, a fantastic way to have adventures. There is really, I was talking to my, my, my wife, Michelle, today about this because I was talking about how I was going to spotlight these adventures. And there's a really fine line between as an adventure writer, as an adventure creator, who's going to sell a product to somebody. It's a very fine line between making sure you're giving them stuff they can't just do on their own and not giving them so much that you're becoming a burden to them. It's really hard to do. And I don't know that I've always been, <laughs> I don't know that I've been successful, maybe at all, 
But I, I don't know that I've always been successful. As hard as I try and as hard as I try to keep that in mind, it can be it can be difficult to do so. And I know that like sometimes my adventures can get wordy too. I think every adventure writer, the adventures can get wordy as well. And it's that fine line between making sure you're giving the DM enough that you're like, you're worth the effort, right? That you're worth the energy. Color maps are a good example. Like color maps that are well integrated to an adventure is not something that a DM is going to be able to easily do themselves. And so you can save money. You can save you can save time and effort by buying an adventure that gives you a good color map that's integrated with the adventure that you're going to run with. I think that Kelsey, with the stuff here on that the Arcane Library has published, has really managed to find that line of ensuring that she's giving enough value and enough information that it's worth paying money for and not so much that you're that you're wasting your your time. I've talked before that adventures don't always adventures aren't easier are typically not easier to run than the stuff that you come up with yourself. You don't buy an adventure because you want to save time. Because integrating that adventure is still takes energy, digesting it, bringing it in, making it your own, that still takes time. What you're getting for your time and paying for an adventure is you're getting stuff you wouldn't want to make yourself. The integration of maps, the detailed stories, the backgrounds, the histories, the ties, the artwork, all of that stuff is stuff like you're not going to want to come up with on your own. I think these might be the exception. I think that these adventures will save you time that I think that they internalizing these adventures is easy enough that I think you can really internalize them probably faster than you could trying to make your own adventure. That's as detailed with this on top of the fact that you're getting artwork and good design and an interesting story and, you know, balanced encounters and maps and all of the rest. So it's really fantastic stuff. I've only looked at just one of her adventures. She sent me three. I didn't have a quick look at Knights and Devil's Peak. I didn't I didn't have a chance to dive in and, and really dig into it. Very much the same style, though. Looks looks really cool. Let's just look at the summary real quick. Background. The mighty devil, Chern, Chernabog, I could have used a pronunciation there, has a slumbered atop Devil's Peak for 100 years. Held in dream by powerful blessing of the paladin Saint Sophia placed on him as her final act. Since then, the town of Verhold has grown in the mountain's shadow. At the center of the town, a, a magnificent statue of Saint Sophia keeps watch over the Devil's Peak. Few villagers remember, remember it is the saint herself in petrified form. Unbeknownst to the villagers, Saint Sophia's blessing breaks when a rare witch's moon, a full moon on the first night of autumn, casts her baleful light into the statue's eye. That's pretty cool, right? Looks, looks fun. What level is this for? This is for six level characters, four or five, six level characters. So this is a good tier two, tier two adventure. Same style, same design, really cool art. Really like it. Another one that I looked at was Sanctum of the Moon Elves. This is an adventure that you could definitely throw right into your Spelljammer game that as a is designed to kind of fit in with a Spelljammer game without getting too close to the intellectual property wizards of the cross with Spelljammer, but it definitely falls into that one looks 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 really cool this is much more of an exploration based adventure you find the sanctum of the moon elves you go there and you kind of dive into their stuff fifth level characters so a tier two tier two adventure quick look at the background the moon elves are an ancient spacefaring people who dwelt amongst the stars in lunar places civilization reached its zenith before the apes that would have become humans crept out of the trees the moon elves eventually departed this reality transition to a fully spiritual form their abandoned sanctums now drift in space haunted by the other uh, unworld, the unworthy moon elves who failed their spiritual apotheosis and were left behind. Really neat. So you go and you explore one of these moon elf things. Very, very cool stuff. So 
In short, I really think these adventures are cool. I really like this style. You can pick up a whole bunch of different bundles on, on her website, on the Arcane Library website. I will link to that. That is down. That is linked down in the show notes below. Take a look. Maybe pick one up and see if it's for you. Go. The adventures are about five bucks. You know, some of them are cheaper. Five dollars for Ghostlight. Uh, other ones are like three bucks. Uh, the collection, fifty dollars, includes how many different adventures? Fifteen adventures for fifty bucks. Pretty good price. This is the one that I picked up. I, I picked up this big bundle. You get a lot of stuff, so be prepared to be downloading a big pile of things because you're going to get a big pile of things. If you want to check out her style, you can get a free adventure, a free five E adventure, by joining her mailing list. You click the Get Adventure, stick in your email address. I did. And you get a copy of it, the free copy of Temple of the Basilisk Cult, a first level pulp action 5e adventure. So check it out. Absolutely free. Sign up. Throw your email address away. Sign up to our newsletter. Hear about our new announcements and things that are going on and get a free adventure. Check that out. I will link directly to that subscription down in the show notes below as well. This week, Cobalt Press released the Playtest Packet 2 for Black Flag. This is a pretty crunchy playtest. It's 19 pages of material. It includes like level one to eight of fighter and wizard classes. It also includes a few other sort of character driven things. And I thought we'd take a quick look through it. I, yesterday morning, I dove, I dove through it pretty thoroughly. I do put the disclaimer that I am not really a character mechanics focused guy. I don't really understand all of the ins and outs of things. I see all kinds of stuff on different places about balance issues between fighters and wizards. I don't I don't even know if that's true. All I know is people are still playing both fighters and wizards, so it doesn't seem to be that much of a problem. But there's definitely like questions of balance and things like that. So I'm not going to dive into those questions of balance and things like that. There were a few a few points that jumped out at me but like, "Huh, how about that?" So we're going to we're going to we're going to take a look. But you can go download the playtest for free from Cobalt Press's website. I will link down to it in the show notes below. You can download playtest packet to, and you can provide feedback to Cobalt Press. I think it is probably a good thing to do so. I'm interested in all of the different 5e variants being as strong as possible. So we have lots of opportunity to try different things and try different game systems that are still built around this engine that we love, which is for me, fifth edition, the, the 5e, the 5e. So it has some, you know, how to use the packets and how to kind of get an understanding. The first thing they jumped into is a concept of luck. And if you, uh, let's see, I guess later this week, you'll see that I'm trying to incorporate this into my Scarlet Citadel game. I actually want to try out this mechanic my initial reaction to luck was meh i don't like it right and i bet you a lot of people are like meh, i don't like it you know why all we're doing is complicating inspiration is that really a thing do we really want to complicate inspiration do we really want to add mechanics the more i think about it, the more i'm like i don't know it's pretty good and then i read their thing that said hey really try this out before you just leave a comment and i said okay i'll do that i'll add it to my scarlet citadel game and we'll see what my players think of this and then i'm reading and i'm like i bet you it's pretty good i kind of like it so the way luck works is luck replaces inspiration you don't have inspiration you're not intended to have both inspiration and luck and instead you have luck and the idea with luck is you can have up to five luck which are rewarded in much the same way that inspiration is rewarded. A GM can give it to you because you're doing things. One thing I like is that the GM can give it to you for pursuing an interesting path that might not be optimal. So again, who's going to open the door? And you can dangle luck points. Luck point. You want a luck point? Open the door. Open the door. Here's a luck point. And they open their door. Like, ha, fireball in the face. You don't want to do that. But you can give you can give luck for lots of things. It's it's your your, your it's your commerce. It's your it's your material to to give to the characters when they do accomplish. If you don't give experience points, it's a good a good way to kind of drop in experience points. If you want to make offers, I'll offer that to you, but I'll give you a luck point for it. You can do it. It's a very flexible system. But more most importantly, you get luck when you fail an attack roll or a saving throw. 
So if you're rolling attack rolls and they suck and you're having a bad night because you're rolling a lot of bad attack rolls, you're adding these luck points every time. You can turn in three luck points to re-roll or you can spend one or more luck points by adding a plus bonus onto a roll after you've made the roll but before you've determined the outcome. Pretty cool. There's that little thing of like, you know, are, do you want to add luck points to a roll? You know, there's a whole like GM thing. Do you know? But I don't think it's going to be a big deal. So I think that that's really interesting. You can't hoard luck points because the minute you get a sixth luck, instead of just not getting it, you roll a D4 and that's how many luck points you have. So you want to spend them because you will literally lose luck points if you don't spend them. They don't, they disappear when you get your sixth. Like you'll, you'll definitely not, you're not going to be able to keep five because the best you could roll is a D4 and you're just as likely to have one instead of five. So you want to spend them. You want to burn these points. There are two descriptions that they offer about how this works. One is that there's a cap on luck points and it's meant to encourage them regularly spending their luck points instead of hoarding it. And that because the minute you hit a six, you roll a D4 and that's how many you have, the player's going to realize, oh, wow, that sucks. I better spend these. And you're going to want to spend luck points a lot. So there's going to be a lot of luck point commerce going on. And then they have this two paragraph description that says, we know you might not like this on the surface. Please give it a shot. And I'll tell you, I felt that way about advantage. When I saw advantage come out, I was like, ugh, I don't like that. So now we have it in here. So I think that's really cool. I'm going to try out my Scarlet Citadel game and we're going to see how it works and 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 we'll 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 play with that. Then there's character class stuff. I didn't see a lot of the top level class things that seem to be changing. Somebody can let me know, you can let me know in the comments if there's general class stuff that's changed that I missed. There's two classes they're offering and I think they're offering up to level 8 on these classes. One thing that I think's interesting is to me one of the bigger failings of fifth edition is the lethality of first level compared to all of the other levels that first level is so much more lethal than second, third, fourth, or any of the other levels in the game that you would think just from a balance perspective, doing something to make first level, not quite as lethal would be good. And this is the opportunity for every system to do something about that. Just give a little bit more. Right. And you, it's something as simple as your hit points of first level could be 15, you know, 10 plus your con modifier plus five and give everybody a little bit of extra hit points. And we're seeing all kinds of power creep happening anyway. We're seeing talents being dropped in and talents are powerful. We're seeing that they're, they're now every feat is actually a half feat where you get these bonuses for your feats and stuff like that. So we're already seeing power creep. Why not just bump up first level a touch and five hit points is nothing because it doesn't matter later. You know, it's not going to matter that you have five extra hit points when you're 17th level, but it sure as hell matters at first level and it would make first level more fun. I would really love to see games that are offering more f hit points at first level. I think it's something that all of the 5e systems could do because I'm house ruling the hell of it and doing it all the time. And then it's just a little bit less risk. So I didn't, other than, I didn't really see any other character driven things that came out here. So then there's like fighter changes. Last stand is sort of a, a different variant on healing surge is a healing surge. I think instead of spending a bonus action, you, you can use your, let's see, when you take damage, that would reduce your hit points to amount less than half. You can use your reaction to expend and hit dice and get it. So you're using a reaction to get hit points instead of a bonus action. I don't know if that's to balance with the bonus action economy. Not really sure. Partial actions. You have like aim guard, quick strike, wind up these other things. I, I thought it kind of interesting that you have aim. So I, there, there's a mechanic in here that again makes me go meh, right? And I don't know, maybe I'll fall in love with it later. I don't, I'm not crazy about the idea of like doubling your proficiency bonus for things. 
And I get that, like, well, the idea is you can both double your proficiency bonus and have advantage. And so the intent might be to stack with advantage. So either intended or unintended, it stacks with advantage. And and then it adds this other mechanic that now you got to remember. And I just, I feel like we're, we're, we're getting back to like the third edition, dorking around with a bunch of different little plus modifiers. And the whole point of advantage was that you didn't have to add plus modifiers to stuff. You could just deal with advantage. And it made things nice and simple. And I worry that when you add something in like aim, where it says as a bonus action, you can take time to increase the effectiveness of your next range weapon attack. When you use aim, select one target, you can see if you make a range weapon attack against that target before the end of your next turn, you double your proficiency. Why isn't it just advantage? The other thing is there's an aim that is now in fifth edition in Tasha's that's also called aim that gives advantage. And so are we going to get confused? And that's actually something that I worry about a bit is as we see these other 5e variants coming around, and for those of us who are going to be eager to look at all the different 5e variants, are we going to end up with a mishmash of rules that don't work well with one another and we don't remember which system we're playing, so we don't remember things like which aim are we using? Are we using the aim from Cobalt Press, which is a fighter thing that adds your proficiency bonus, or are we using the aim from the rogue ability in Tasha's, which is yeah, you get advantage? I, I don't know if we're going to collide like that. I'm not, I'm not sure. I also felt like the wind-up, as a bonus action, you can take the time to increase the effectiveness of your next weapon attack. When you use your wind-up, select one target you can see within five feet. You make a melee attack against a target before the end of your next turn, you double your proficiency. It's the same thing. It's, you know, we have a whole other power that feels like exactly the same as this power. Only one is a ranged attack and one is a two-handed weapon or versatile weapon with both hands. Now, I guess the idea is you can't aim and wind up when you're fighting with two weapons or I, I, I guess it's restricted to, they wanted to restrict when you're doing it, but it seems like, I don't know. It feels like these could have been combined into something, into one thing. But I guess if you're doing that, then basically you're saying, I'm going to do it all the time. But I'm not sure that I'm crazy about the proficiency bonus. Doubling the proficiency bonus sounds like a pain in the ass to me. I don't really know. One thing that's really important to understand is this is just me giving my opinion and we all have opinions and I don't think mine is any stronger or, or weaker than anybody else's. You know, I don't, I don't know that I'm not, I'm not saying I'm right about this. I could be wrong about all this stuff. This is just my immediate reaction to it that I wanted to share, not to say you should also like write in your feedback about how much you hate doubling proficiency. I'm not saying that, right? Like my, my point is we should all take a look at it. And these are the things that stood out to me. Action surge, it feels like the same as normal action surge. Discipline, basic capabilities to reach their peak. You choose a discipline from the options. We're going to look at some of the disciplines. Improvement, fourth, sixth, and eighth. But this, I think this is like an error. I can't tell if it's fourth and eighth or fourth, sixth, and eighth. You increase one ability score by one and choose a talent. So you get more talents as a fighter. That's a lot of feats. Multi-attack at fifth. I, I, I would presume that you would get multi-attack at higher levels too, except it only goes up to eight. So it's, it's, it's hard to see. Hard to say, but you'll, yeah. Spellblade. So we have two different disciplines that they offer. Spellblade and what's the other one? And Spellblade and Weapon Master. So Spellblade, you can cast spells. One interesting thing is when you get it to a certain level, you can start to cast cantrips as an offhand. So that's kind of, you can cast cantrips as one part of your attack. That's seventh level spell multi-attack. I didn't see anything here that jumped right at me. The idea that at third level, you can enchant your blade and essentially give yourself the equivalent of a plus one weapon. That's fine. But then what if you get a plus one weapon? you basically get a whole ability that doesn't really matter to you. I suppose it means that whatever weapon you have is a good one, but I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know. And then stunts 
are your the equivalent of like the battle master. They call it weapon master, but they're basically like the same as sort of a stunt system. This felt weaker to me than the normal the normal ones because you don't get to add like a weapon die, right? The idea here was that you would have like so many dice, and when you performed one of these stunts, you got to add a weapon die onto it. And so this feels like a just a, a nerf, right? It feels like I'm basically getting the battle master, but it's not as good as a battle master. And I think it, I don't know that it necessarily needs to be like, oh, you make sure it's better than a battle master. But if you're going to make it different, I would at least, you know, I don't, I don't know why this, I don't, I don't, I don't, I didn't see that these were particularly strong in other ways where battle master, at least I got a D8, right? You get your stump points. I don't know. I felt like, I felt like, I felt like it was weaker than a battle master. And I, I, battle master is my favorite kind of fighter to play. And I, I have played a battle master up to like the 11th level, I think. And I really liked the battle master stuff. But I also like that you would throw a D8 onto it. It wasn't super overpowered. It didn't feel overpowered to me, but it worked really. Some of these made me scratch my head because some of them are just, you know, why would I, why would I pick that? So hobbling strike, for example, costs one point. When you successfully hit a creature weapon attack as part of the attack, you could choose to forego dealing damage and reduce the target's movement speed by half. So you get to do no damage with the hit and reduce its movement by half. Who's ever going to want to do that compared to these other ones? Like that's not very much. And then you have like sweep the leg. When you successfully hit a creature no larger than one size category above you, as part of the attack row, you can attempt to knock it prone. The target must succeed on a strength saving throw. So Hoppling Strike automatically does it. And Sweep the Leg, they get a strength saving throw. But they're prone, which also reduces their movement by half. So, I don't know. I don't know why this one doesn't also do weapon damage. It feels like Hoppling Strike should do weapon damage. It was little things like that where I'm like, hmm, that seems weird. And it, and it felt like some of these, this is another one where I felt like you have two abilities that are so close to one another. Why are we having separate powers for them? And one was arcing strike, which is like cleave. I don't know why they don't just call it cleave. When you successfully deal damage with a weapon attack, you also deal dam additional damage, half that damage to another creature within five feet. So you sweep through. And then you do run through, which is you, when you successfully deal damage with a weapon attack, you can also deal an additional half of that amount of damage to a different target you see within five feet. This time you're stabbing through. So... This one, the creature doesn't need to be next to you. It could be next to the person you're stabbing because you're stabbing through them to hit somebody else. Now, I guess this is like, it's really interesting that it's based on weapon type, right? So in this case, it's a two-handed weapon that deals slashing damage. And in this case, it requires a weapon that deals piercing damage. So I think that the weapon types are what matter about it. And the reason why it's not one ability is that they don't want to just give it to everybody for every weapon that there's particular ones. And then they say, oh, by the way, we're probably going to have more because like, are you going to have stuff for two weapon fighters? Are you going to have stuff for one hand slashing weapons, right? Like, I wonder if they're like, we want to make it meaty to pick a different kind of weapon. You know, will axes have different things? Will, you know, and and they could do that. And they, I guess they couldn't do that if they like, if they made arcing strike, like you always get to do it, whatever weapon you're holding. That might be, that might be a reason why. Oh, deadly flourish. I'm not deadly. I'm just sly. The seventh level feature, weapon attacks made with weapons you master score critical. It's a 19 20. I'm always very apprehensive about this because of fourth edition. Fourth edition broke critical hits so badly. I think that there's a design idea that we want to increase crits. And in fourth and fifth edition, I think that only the champion fighter really has a way to do this. And now we're saying, no, we're going to give it to these other ones, even though they have these other things. And then there's this worry about like, what if you give weapon attack critic critting to the arcane guy now that's got to work with everything else and if they ever get an ability that does something on a crit 
you create these like weird situations where one character is really broken. So I, I'm, you know, you really, when the minute you're touching critical hits and, and making crit threat ranges change, you got to look at everything else that has any effect on crit and say, is this going to break this? Because you're doubling your likelihood to crit. You're doubling it. And that means action surging. That means off weapon attacks with your other hand. And that means any other effect that does any weird stuff with crits you're affecting with that. And, and I think it's, it's very easy to very easy to go overboard with that. So there's wizard stuff. The interesting thing with wizards is now they have in spell casting in general is they're also doing what one D and D did. And they're grouping spells into like arcane spells. They have four spell types. Where is it in here? Somewhere it's in here. The circles of magic. So they have arcane, divine, primordial, and weird for its spell types. And I think this is that idea. I finally heard a really good description of like why you have to do this. And the reason you can do this is that when you're putting out new material, you can tie it to any one of these circles. And then you can know which characters are allowed to get which circles without having to dork with their... Every time you release new spells, you have to say, oh, these are the classes that can get access to those spells or even subclasses that get access to those spells. They're changing the name spell level to ring. And I've seen discussions on at least a couple of different discords about this and like, oh, I don't like that. Or I wish it was something else. Ring is fine to me. The idea of like your first ring spells to ninth ring spells means that you're not having this collision of, oh, character level and spell level are two different things, you know, and, and trying to explain that to somebody. It's really confusing. Now, of course, wizards are also still really confusing. And, you know, I've been playing for 10 years and I still get confused about wizards. And the reason why is that Wizards have four different things they have to consider with their spells. You have the number of spells you can have in your book. You have the number of spells you can prepare. And you have the number of spells that you can cast. And they're all, did I say four? Maybe it's only three. I think there's another one that I'm missing. But it gets really confusing. If you've ever had like a player who's like not super experienced, who's tried to play a wizard, explaining to them that you have these like three different things you have to be keeping track of. What's in your book? What's are, what you, are you able to prepare during a day? And then what you're able to cast. And they're all kinds of, and then you throw rituals on there and it becomes, it becomes even more confusing. So like when you read, you know, first level, you have a spell book containing six first ring arcane spells of your choice. Your spellbook is a repository. When you get new, every level, you get two new spells from whatever rings you're able to cast to that you can add to your book. But then you also prepare spells and the spell slots you have available to cast your spells. To cast one, you must have a prepare. To prepare, and it's different numbers for everything. So instead of saying like your number of spells prepared is equal to all of the spells you can cast added together right instead of like tying the two numbers together it's no the number of spells you prepare is your int plus your wizard level your int modifier plus wizard level so it's all these different things that you have to remember and then you have ritual casting on top of that i always found like wizard it, it, this is again it's one of those opportunities to really look at the wizard but can we like simplify this somehow can we make this a little bit easier you know it's it's just i don't know it it, it feels hard but i'm but also maybe wizards that's the thing about wizards wizards are the, are the complicated spellcasters. they have lots of different things then it's also interesting thing here the ability to find spells out in the world and copy them to your spell because one of the most unique elements of the wizard so make sure to keep your eye out for spells and by the way you're gonna have to remind your gm it doesn't say this you know if it's been a few sessions since your character found or had an opportunity to purchase such treasures ask your gm about creating more opportunities because guess what we forget GMs forget that spells are loot. Now, 
Level Up Advanced 5e did something really cool. Well, they have advanced spells that you're not intended to be able to get to add to your book and that really are intended to be loot. And I like that idea a lot. But, you know, this, this part of it, it's funny that they're basically telling a player, you're going to have to remind your GM about finding spells because they're not going to be paying attention. And it's absolutely true. I'm busy. I'm, I don't have time to think. I got a couple wizards in a couple different, couple different games. I never think about, oh, yeah, I should be adding more spells or spell books or something. And it's also a pain. Like, where do you find the spells and rolling random? Like, there's no good random tables in any of the books for finding spells. It's just, it's not easy. You know, it's not an easy thing to do. I don't think anything else really jumped out at me. They have like a hand, they only have like a couple of spells. So I'm very curious about like, well, you know, what are you going to do with your other spells? There is this complication of you have your circles of spells and you have the schools of spells and those are different too. So we have, we have rings of spells, circles of spells and schools of spells. And I get why they're doing that, but boy, that's complicated, right? If you think about like, if they're trying to go through the, the, the process of saying, we want to make life easier for a new person to get into the game. So we're going to call them rings instead of levels. Well, that's great, but you might, you know, probably have to pick that thread a little bit more. One thing I would love to see, and I don't know, I'll, maybe I'll just, I'll just tell them, I'll just send this to them directly because I would love to see it. I would love to see spells have some indication in their descriptions or in a, a group description about how are you, how can you adjudicate an area of effect in a theater of the mind battle? If you look at how like Shadow of the Weird Wizard is doing in their play test and how 13th Age did it, there's lots of ways to do this. And there's lots of ways to do it where you could do both. Hey, this is how it plays out in a grid. This is how it plays out in theater of the mind. And we, but the guidance is in the book itself so that there aren't arguments about how it's supposed to play out and a DM doesn't have to come up with stuff. I would love to see that in here. I'll probably mention that to them. I think I might just tell them that. I might, I might bypass the feedback mechanism and slide that in. We'll see. So lots of other stuff here. I'm very curious to see the spells themselves, like what spells are changing. That would be really pretty neat. But again, we don't have a lot of spell descriptions. We only have a handful, only have a handful of spells that we have in here. So pretty neat, pretty neat play test. Kind of neat to see where they're going. And if you have any thoughts about it, that, you know, be nice, but you can talk about them in the, you can send them in the comments. And what, what, what grabbed you? What, what, and what are you interested in seeing? How does it make you feel about it? For me, I'm just eager to see all of these things happen. It's not level up 5e. I'm interested to see where that goes, continues to go. I'm definitely interested in Black Flag. I'm interested in Cubicle 7's 5e variant. I'm going to see how that, how that plays out. And of course, 1D&D. We're going to look at all of these. The question is like, I still get back to, are we going to have sort of like rule, weird rule collisions with all of these different 5e variants and we're going to forget which ones are from which i'm already having that by playtesting one D stuff we're like oh no that's not how inspiration works or they're changing it i'll tell you it's hard playtesting and now it's hard playtesting different versions of the game at the same time is is that's that's pretty tough too so pretty interesting stuff so that's the black flag that's the black flag playtest Let's do some questions for the Patreon Q&A. Every month on the Sly Flourish Patreon, I put up a thread for the monthly Q&A. You can post a question there as a patron of Sly Flourish and RPG-related question. I answer all of them on the Patreon itself. Some of them I move to talk about here on this show and some become articles themselves. This one I moved up to the top of the list because it has to do with Forge of Foes, the book that is currently that we're currently launching on Kickstarter. And I didn't want to answer this question after the Kickstarter was over, so I moved it to the top of the list. 
K. Ivan R. says, what made you, and I'm going to, I don't think he was confrontational about it, but I'm going to pretend it was. I'm going to pretend this is a hard hitting. What are you doing, sir? What made you decide to make a book about monster creation, considering how in the past you have emphasized that creating monsters isn't usually a good use of your time and should be done only as a last resort when nothing else can represent your monster? I'm, I'm, I don't think it was nearly as confrontational as I made it sound, but I, I think it's kind of funny. The question is, like I have said in the past, building monsters is a waste of time. Don't build monsters. It's, it's, it's a significant waste of time. And then I put out a book like, hey, here's a book, which options for building monsters. And here's why. Our book about building monsters is about building monsters in a way that is even faster than going and finding a monster to run. That our version of building monsters is not the kind of building monsters that you find in a book like the Dungeon Master's Guide. Ours is really designed to make it as fast and as easy as possible for you to build to get to build the statistics for a monster from your fiction. It is designed to be very, very fast. And if you take a look at the, the, the quick monster, it's called the quick monster builder, right? The quick monster builder guidelines are intended for you to whip up a creature in literally under a minute. And maybe adding some new features and some interesting stuff might be two minutes. You will not be able to build a monster with the Dungeon Master's Guide rules in, in, in two minutes. And one big reason is that our monsters are intended for you to improvise a lot of them. They are not publishable monsters. You are not going to be able to take a monster you built out of Forge of Foes in two minutes and publish it as a fully published full stat block. We abstract a lot of it. We don't talk about languages. We don't talk about senses. We don't talk about movement speed. There's lots of things that we just abstract away and say, here are the base statistics that you need. And when you need those other things, add them in saving throws we talk about the fact that you don't trying to figure out every single potential saving throw or every ability bonus for a monster can take time so instead know what your monster is good at and give it poor saves when it for things it's not good at and give it good saves for those things that are we have a whole description about how to do that the intent is to give you the mechanics you need to be able to improvise the monster at the table and it's much faster than building a monster from scratch so when i've talked about building a monster for your game i'm talking about going through those rules from the dungeon master's guide to start from scratch and build a full monster and then have it get hit with a hypnotic pattern in round one and they kill it and you wasted all your time I want it to be that it's so fast for you to build a monster. You can build a monster that gets hypnotically patterned and killed and you don't care because you barely put any investment into it in the first place. That's what we're trying to do with the book. And I think, I think having tested it myself, having heard other people that have been testing it, I think we accomplished that goal. So that's the design. The way we build monsters in Forge of Foes is not the standard way that you build a monster. It is designed for speed. It is designed for ease. It is designed for the lazy way. But Kevin, thank you for bringing up that question. And again, it was Lauren. It was it was a more recent question, but I bumped it to the top because I wanted to address it specifically. Forge of Foes, by the way, available on Kickstarter. You can find a link in the show notes below. Please back it. It's really cool. Josh B says, thoughts on playing live with kids and or obst obstructive pets. I have an obstructive pet right there. He's sitting right. He's not that obstructive. He's just sitting on his perch. He's just sitting on that perch, licking his tail especially little ones who aren't able to be involved in the game itself. Thoughts on playing live with kids and or obtrusive pets, especially little ones who aren't able to be involved in the game itself. I don't have fantastic advice for this. I put, I kept this on here because I think it's probably something a lot of people deal with. And the ways that I have seen parents do it, I'm not a parent and my pets are obtrusive and we, we can be obtrusive and we do it. We put them in a different part of the house. So we have cats, right? And the cats can, they, they can live on their own. They'll probably live for, you know, a year and a half if we were gone. So we put them in the basement, 
right? We have a basement door. We put him in the basement and sometimes we'll hear one of them meowing at the door. We only have one cat that bothers us during the game. And he, she likes to jump up on the kitchen table and eat the rubber bands off of our chip bags. And now she expects the rubber bands to be there. Even if there aren't rubber bands, she jumps up on the table and it drives her a bit of bananas because you don't want a cat crawling around in your chips. So we stick her in the basement and then she meows at the door. Separation. And separation and the other, the other thing to do is have, if you can find someone else who can help you with them. So I know that parents of young children have a babysitter or have an au pair or have somebody else who can stay with the children when, and, 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 you know, treat it like you're not there. If you weren't going to be there, what would you do? Now, in some cases we have, I've had parents who have, it's their night to take care of the, take care of the child or children. And they just, they do, they do their best. Right. And if the, usually at that point, like the kids are old enough that they know like, Hey, go play over there. We're, we're, we're doing our thing over here. Playing online is not bad. So we, I have, I have parents who play and we play online. And even in that case, they have sort of a babysitter. They know that they know that their children, if they were taking care of them themselves during the game, that that wouldn't really work. So they have a babysitter who, who helps take care of the children when they're there. And, and that's, you know, a, a, you know, obtrusive pets, Again, like if they're really that obtrusive, is there somebody else in the household who can kind of help manage the pet while you're managing the game? But then the other one is go somewhere else, right? Go to go to find another place physically to, to play. And these are not all doable, right? It's hard. And, you know, life, life is, you know, life is the biggest disruptor to a good D&D game. All the other parts of our life is a really big disruption to the D&D game. So I don't, I don't know that those are all great help. I don't know that all of those are things that you wouldn't think of yourself, but I will say there's not a really great way other than that. When the, when the children are old enough that they can be in the game itself, bring them in. And I've had that. We've had that where somebody will have their child and their child is the one that rolls a dice for them. So they're kind of co-running a character with the parent and the child together. That's worked pretty well as long as they're staying engaged. And, and usually they have to be old enough, old enough to kind of enjoy that. But there are definitely, uh, there are definitely other ways, but a lot of it. And the hard part is separation, like finding a way to kind of separate your game from, from your children or from your obtrusive pets so that you can enjoy the game. And anyway, good way to do that is have someone else that is helping to take care of them. So Josh B, I mean, and that I, there may be others. If you are a parent, if you are a, either a parent of children or young children or a parent of obtrusive pets, and you have good suggestions for how you've been able to handle it, put that down in the, in the comments below. I'd definitely be interested in hearing it. Christopher W says, what advice do you have for helping groups synergize their character creation during a session zero? I usually create a one sheet based on what you've created for your session zeros, which I find very helpful. But at the actual session, how do you guide players to feed off of each other's ideas for character creation? So it's messy and it's okay to be messy. It's not always great. And there's a lot of like, you know, the Spider-Man point, people pointing at one another, but there's a few things that you can kind of do to, to help out. One is, for the players who are really eager to think about their new character, I say bring up two and love them both equally. So bring two characters with you. And then we can say like, you know, talk about the two characters that you have and then have somebody else talk about two characters. And then among those two, see if there's a synergy there. Also ask them to talk about what skills they're training and to make sure that they're not all training in the same set of skills and that the skills are spread out among the different characters. Make sure that they have somebody who can be an upfront fighter, like some kind of upfront tanky, whether it's a fighter, barbarian, paladin, Somebody who's not afraid to get up there into the, into the grill of a monster and that you have a strong healer, right? That's somebody that can heal the person who ran up there. As long as you have those, every other 
class can kind of work. So you want to steer it towards that general, that those general directions, but it can be messy and it can be a lot of players that aren't, they, they're not ready to commit because they don't want to be the one to kind of force everybody else to do it until eventually somebody does. And then everything else usually clicks into place. But you can also like think about the character concepts they come up with and then try to say like, oh, that one's really works. And that would work really well with this other one. But it's not a super clean process. Don't and so you don't have to expect it to be a clean process. That's why we don't dedicate a whole session for it. Is that during that session is the time for the players to talk about the characters that they're they're thinking about that they haven't yet committed to, and letting them hear about the other ones and then figuring out which ones their characters going in. And it's not it's just not a super clean process. There's not this perfect sort of checklist that you walk down to determine how that's going to play out. You just need the players to start talking among themselves, talk about the theme of the adventure, really treat it as an opportunity for you to ask guided questions that help steer them to each other and that steer the characters they're thinking about to the campaign and making sure that that bonds together and it's loose and, and malleable and gray and you know can be a little bit opaque until it gets more and more clear as it comes in and more and more clear until finally you have a set of characters that works really well. So Christopher, I hope that helps. I, I, your, 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 your question is something that I think about a lot with the games that I run. My session zeros can be pretty messy and they aren't, there isn't this like clean way of saying, here's the process we have that we walk through to determine which characters people are going to pick and how they interact. We don't really have a system for that. Instead, it's like, well, you have, you know, have somebody either come with zero or two characters. Don't have them come with one because then they're definitely going to want to do it and have them talk about what they're thinking out loud and let other people talk about what they're thinking and, and create that writer's room sort of mentality. But it's not a super clean process. So give that a shot. Friends, I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things RPG. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did and you want to, what do I want to say? Yeah. If you did and you want more material like this, please subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. You will get a weekly RPG related email sent directly to your email inbox and a free adventure generator PDF for signing up. You can also support me directly on Patreon. There are two Patreon tiers, the veteran tier and the hero tier. If you want to give a little bit more, if you think that the material I'm producing is really useful to you, if you find the things that you like on Patreon that you feel you're really using in your game, you can give more by becoming a hero of Sly Flourish on the Sly Flourish Patreon. Link for that is in the show notes below. And you can pick up any of my books, including Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the Lazy DMs Workbook, and the Lazy DMs Companion on the Sly Flourish Bookstore. Links for all of those are down in the show notes below. Thank you all very much. Have a great day and get out there and play an RPG.